This morning I get to sort of be a little bit of a teacher as well as a preacher, and I promise you that many of the messages that are part of this series will be inspiring and uh, uplifting and all that stuff, and hopefully today is the same, but today is a little bit more teaching than it is preaching because I need to set up what we're doing. We're talking about culture. The name of our series is The Issachar Factor, and for the next several weeks, we're going to break down some of the things that, that are going on in culture, some of the things that are, are happening around us, but today I need to set the stage for why we're even doing this and, and why we're choosing the Scripture that we're using in order to walk through it. The Issachar Factor is the name of a book that was published way back in the 90s, and it was on church growth. It, and, and the title comes from 1 Chronicles 12, 20. Don't write it down. We're not going there for any of the rest of the series. It's just the title. 1 Chronicles 12, 20, there was a group of, uh, of, of warriors. There was a group of men around King David as he fled from King Saul. And the descriptor of these men is that the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what they should do. They, they, they weren't the, the brutes that just led out in battle. They weren't the Goliaths that were nine feet taller than everybody else. They, they, they weren't the, the, the skilled archers. They weren't the spearsmen or the shield bearers. They were the strategists. They were the battle planners. They were the ones who could interpret the circumstances, who could understand the surroundings, who could look at the, uh, uh, the landscape and, and the factors that influenced the battle, and they could devise a battle plan. They could speak into King David to give him wisdom. And that's really what this whole series is about. The Issachar factor is that you and I would understand the times and we would know what we should do. That we would be able to interpret the landscape of the things around us and, and, and neither run from it. Our, our, our temptation as we talk about culture and, and my, my job for years and years to, was to, to try to speak into the youth culture, the, the teenage culture, all the things that were going on with, with music and with media and with things like that and speak to parents about how these are cultural impacts. Well, now as a pastor, I, I realize that all of us have choices. We can either rant about all the things we really disagree with. We can rant about all the people we disagree with. Or we can focus our attention on the things that we can do. We can understand the times and know what we should do. The way of wisdom. The way of Jesus. So what I hope to do over the next few weeks, and I'm going to uh, share the stage with some other of our pastors as they speak into specific areas of the culture. But today I'd like to sort of give an overview of why this is a little bit important. Here's what I hope we do. Can you all light up that back screen for me? Here's what I hope we do. Holiness is what we need but it's not always what we long for. 
There's an old song, right? We, we sang holiness. It's, it's what we need. It's what we know. We, we know we should be holy. We know we should be separate. We know we should be distinctively different. But that's not always the case. Holiness is the challenge of 1 Peter, and it demands a contrast with the culture. Now, I'm going to dive into why we're looking at 1 Peter in, in just a second. But, but the, the whole idea is that Peter was writing to a culture that was in conflict. The value system of Rome was not necessarily the value system of Christianity. The value system of Judaism was not necessarily the value system of Christianity. The value system of the pagan culture was not the value system of people of faith. And so Peter wrote to a culture that was uh, demanding holiness, but it was in the midst of persecution in the midst of a cancel culture. And the cancel culture back then mean they canceled your life. The Romans were experts at that. And so we want to talk about faith and culture. And, and I want to start with the question, why should the church even bother? Back in the summer, we studied Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, Paul told the church, Devote yourselves to prayer, church. Be watchful and thankful. Pray for us that God may open a door for our message. Listen for culture. Proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I, Paul, are in chains. Pray that we can proclaim it clearly. Be wise in the way that you look towards outsiders. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. The Issachar factor, understand the times, know what it is that you should do. Last summer, when we were kind of putting all of this together, one of our church leaders, Andrew Fuqua, he said, I'm afraid our culture, especially the church, we don't know the times. We don't understand the times. And we certainly don't know what we should do. Uh, the, the culture wants to define the narrative. The culture is passive, and yet our response too often is a little apathetic. Sort of like I give to the church. The church gives to missions. I've done my duty. Don't tell me about the details. I don't want to get involved. Or there's always been unrest in Israel. There's always been problems with immigration. There's always been uh, unrest. There's always been problems among races. There's always, so I just, it's out of my control. I can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to take a pass and sit back. The problem is that the culture is not passive. The culture is not ignoring things that are hard to deal with. Culture wants to define the narrative, direct our response, modify our beliefs if they don't line up with the popular storyline. As a pastor, as a Christ follower, I'm concerned about injustice and immorality and ingratitude. I'm sad that God is dismissed. Faith is rejected. Even those who are Christians seem to act like they aren't. I'm concerned that right and wrong have been redefined with little regard for God, or in many cases, any regard for evidence or common sense. I'm concerned that our children 
uh, are, are learning things that are, are teaching them to run away from God. They're not experiencing the world that they will inherit as God's world. I'm disturbed by the political world. Some people from all sides of all issues seem to find it very difficult to act like adults. I'm concerned. Now, Judy and I get to ride in the car a little bit more as empty nesters, and so I've invented a vocabulary because I am convinced that the root of most of this stuff is what the Bible calls pride or hubris. We today call it narcissism, that we're so focused on us that we're not focused on the way that God might use us in this marketplace, in this culture. And so I invented a whole vocabulary of narcissism. This is original here. Take notes. Chronological narcissism. Only in our time do we really understand all of history, all of humanity, all of philosophy, all other times are judged by the standards of our time. Narcissism, pride. Echo chamber narcissism. I'm validated by people who think like me, and they are the only ones I listen to. Identity narcissism. I can ignore science, logic, common sense, declare that I am anything I want to be. Everything, everyone else has to affirm me. Narcissism. Political narcissism. If a person identifies with another political position, they are a bad person. They have nothing good to say. If I dislike your ideas, I dislike you. Leadership narcissism. The positional leader has to be the smartest personal in the room. The other people cannot add anything to the discussion. The emperor has no clothes. And my new favorite, vehicular narcissism. As long as I'm in my car, I can do anything I want to do. Narcissism, it's, it's pride, it's hubris, the list goes on. Violence, abortion, whomever and whatever, sexuality, identity politics, cancel culture, lack of civility, voices in our culture and maybe even in our own heads are screaming loudly. I want to control the discussion without regard for biblical truth, biblical morality. Where does that leave us? Peter calls us to be holy. So why should we be interested in the culture? Because God put us here. God put us here. And for some reason, He has left us here. Uh, someone said that if, if there weren't a purpose for us in this culture, if there weren't a purpose for us on this planet, as soon as we became a follower of Christ, He'd snatch us up to heaven and, and empty this world. But He doesn't. He leaves us here. And in Matthew chapter 5, He expects us to be salt, Seasoning, preserving, irritating just a little bit. He expects us to be light, illuminating, disclosing, revealing. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. He left us here for a purpose. So why First Peter? A few observations. One, Christianity as we know it is receding in both popularity and influence in our culture. Recent studies show that the fastest growing religious group is the group with no religion. The fastest growing group of faith is the people with no faith or faith in some ambiguous nothing. Secondly, in many ways, we who call ourselves Jesus followers are not all that different from the culture around us. 
We divorce at the same rate. We have the same addictions. We have the same kind of entertainment. We wear the same kind of clothes. Next, third, suffering, rightly or wrongly, is often associated with actions or behavior. If we do wrong things, we suffer. If we do right things, we are blessed. And that is the way God works. He blesses those who serve Him. He curses those who do not serve Him. And the evidence in the world just screams something else. Peter is writing to a church that is composed of about three or four different kinds of people. They are composed of the people who were chased out of Rome. If you look at the salutation to the letter, he's writing to, to churches that are located in what we did today we call Asia Minor, that, that area of modern-day Turkey that's sort of on the, the curve of the Mediterranean Sea as it becomes the Aegean, that between Palestine and Greece, so to speak. And all of these churches are composed of people who have been persecuted because in Rome, Christianity was considered to be an atheistic religion because it didn't follow the Greek and Roman gods that were the order of the day. And so people who are an identifiable group of people can be blamed for stuff. Nero blamed the Christians for everything, especially for burning down the slums in Rome, which he set on fire in order to clear the way for his palatial holdings to be expanded. Blame it on the Christians. And so the, the Jewish converts to Christianity had been chased out of Rome, and they, many had found their way to this, this, this uh, barren place in Asia Minor. But it wasn't so barren. It was the crossroads of many of the Roman highways that had been built to connect the empire. And so all of the cities that I'll mention when I read the first part of the Scripture in just a minute, they are, they are on major trade routes. And so they would have picked up the Jews who were being dispersed from Rome. They would have picked up the pagans who were migrating from other parts of the world. And, and all of these people that Peter addresses are followers of Christ. They are believers. They are the church. And so he says, church, you who are from Jewish heritage, you relied on the law. You who are from pagan heritage, you relied on excess. You relied on debauchery. And in verse 18, in just a minute, he's going to say, all of your former ways are useless. That where you are focused in your suffering, in your dispersion, in your exile, you are resident aliens, and holiness is the way of wisdom. So why First Peter? The relationship between Christians and the culture is the dominant theme of Peter. First Peter, writers have suggested that there are two ways to look at it. And, and of course, there are two ways we can approach culture, right? Alienation and accommodation. Rob Dreher wrote a book called The Benedictine Option. 
And in his book, he suggested that a time is coming where Christians should simply isolate. We should create our own residential communities, our own economic uh, systems, our own workplaces, our own schools, our own tennis clubs, our own golf places, our own grocery stores. We shouldn't have anything else to do with the rest of the world. The world is not going to get better. It's not going to get holier. It's not going to get any more more friendly to people of faith. Let's just back away from the whole thing and alienate ourselves from the culture and just live our lives as followers of Christ. The other extreme, of course, is accommodation. Why don't we all just get along? How important is it really that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but for, through me. How important is it really to declare the exclusivity of Christianity? How important is it to say that Jesus is the way, the only way, the one way? How important is that if it's going to cause conflict between me and a neighbor, me and a coworker, me and a schoolmate, me and a family member? How important is that message? And so different... Commentators have interpreted 1 Peter different ways. Some have said it's a message of alienation. Some have a message of accommodation. I think as we look at the verses, we'll find that it's somewhere in between. And does it speak about the culture of our day? Does it speak about violence, abortion, sexuality, identity, cancel, civility? No. Does it speak of the way of wisdom? Does it speak of how we address each one of these aspects of our culture? Absolutely, it does. We are called to be in the culture and to strive for holiness in a culture that's not so holy. So let's dive into the Scripture with a question. Is our faith an idea or an identity? So I have been blessed. I have been given a ticket to the Futility Bowl that will be held later on this afternoon at the Mercedes-Benz. The hapless saints are squaring off against the hapless falcons to the hapless bowl. But I'm going to go, and I'm going to wear my saints gear, because for me, being a fan is not an idea, it's an identity. And when I join a club and part of a team, somebody tells me there's a game tomorrow night. And that people who aren't LSU fans are concerned about it. Well, that's, that's identity, right? That's fandom. That's saying, I'm in. And hopefully you're in, whether good times or bad times, no matter who wins, I hope you still wear the colors home. Oh, it's all the same color, so it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's not an idea. It's an identity. It's not a philosophy. It would be a good idea if we loved Jesus. It would be a good idea if we honored God. It would be a good idea if we worshiped. As long as something better doesn't come along, as long as something doesn't get in the way, as long as somebody doesn't get in my face about my convictions. Is our faith an idea or is it an identity? Peter starts off, to God's elect chosen. He calls them exiles. 
scattered through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's that Asia Minor area. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, uh, those of you who, who are, are, are listening for words of election and predestination, these are the same words, but that's not what he's talking about here. He said God knows God knows who will respond to him. God has, has chosen a way, and he has laid that way out for us. But he uses two different words for elect. He's, he uses one here, and he's going to use one in just a minute. The word elect, it can either mean resident alien which is usually the word he uses when he translates it, exiles. You have been removed from one place and placed in another, and, and you are to live your life in that new place. You are a resident alien. You're not like them. You don't have to like what goes on, but you are called to live out your discipleship in that place. The other word he uses usually is translated sojourners, and it's more like the word tourist. It's more like the, you're just passing through, leave it like you found it. But he uses the word exiles much more often to indicate that there is a, a tension between accommodation and alienation, and the way you live in that tension is the way of wisdom. And so, interesting what he does here. He says, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient, he, he suggests a lifestyle, but then he links the people of Asia Minor, the pagans, the former Jewish people, the former Greeks, the former, whatever faith they had, had, had attached to, now they had unattached from that faith and become followers of Christ, and he links them with the Old Testament covenant. He said, you have been sprinkled with the blood of the Old Covenant. Grace and peace be yours. And then he says, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy. So, so now he's, he's getting down to the, to the nitty-gritty of it. He says, you are a dispersed congregation. You are, you are an exiled people. You have been chased out of a place where everybody thought alike, everybody looked alike, everybody was on the same page, and now you are in a culture of hostility of a, a cancel culture, a persecution culture. And so most of the book of 1 Peter has persecution as its theme. Now, are we persecuted today like the Romans persecuted people? Or are we in danger of martyrdom? Are we in danger of torture? Are we in, in danger of some of the things that Paul endured? Are we in danger of being martyred like 11 of the 12 original disciples? Are we in danger of anything that we don't know? We, we don't think so, but we're in danger of being ostracized. We're in danger of not being asked to come to the parties. We're in danger of our family members saying, don't talk to me about that ever again. And so Peter goes on. Blessed be the God and Father according to his great mercies. We are born in a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We are identified. It's not an idea. It's, it's an identity. 
to an inheritance. He uses language of heirship, language of, 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 of inheritance from a father, from a grandfather. He said, we've given an inheritance. It's kept in heaven. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. We are guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And yes, suffering might be a part of it. Persecution is part of the package. If we decide to take a stand against some of the things in culture, especially those that are not part of the prevailing storyline, not part of the media narrative, not part of the, the agenda, not part of whatever it is, if we take a stand against things that are simply not okay biblically, there is a very real chance that cancellation that ostracization, persecution, in whatever way it shows up, it's a very real possibility. Peter said it's part of the package. He does something really interesting linguistically. I, 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 some of you know that I'm a little bit of a Bible study geek, but if you've got a, a copy of God's Word in your, fan, in your, in your hand or on your phone, or, or I'll, I'll throw it up here on the screen, I think. Watch what he does here. He, he puts a parenthesis here. He says, in this greatly rejoice. Now, the rejoice word is one of the brackets that he's going to fill in some stuff, and then in just a minute he's going to put another bracket with the same word. But look at what he does in between. He says, rejoice because of your trials. James said the same thing in James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So he says, count it joy, rejoice. For a little while, you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I broke it here on the slides because this is... I think the, the key verse in all of 1 Peter, that when we find ourselves ostracized in the culture, embarrassed in the culture, canceled in the culture, when we find ourselves in a place where the stances that we have taken are not popular, are not uh, acceptable, expect that those will call us out. That they will shed light on the fact that I'm the only one in the section with a saint's jersey on. Because it, it, there is a differentness about that. Peter calls it holiness. These have come so that your faith can be shown genuine. These have come so that you can testify of the grace and praise and glory and honor. It's a revelation of Jesus. But he does something interesting here. If you keep reading, he says... More precious than gold that is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him 
and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the other half of the bracket. He uses the word rejoice at the beginning of the thought, the word rejoice at the end of the thought. In the Bible, that's called an inclusio. He's, he's bracketed that thought to shepherd us into the idea that we may be tested. Rejoice. Our faith is more precious than gold. It, it, it is tested with fire. Is it possible that our suffering? Is it possible that our persecution? Is it possible that, that being uh, outsiders in the narrative is because it can inspire others? And maybe because it can imitate Christ. We tend to look at suffering as something we've got to get through, something we've got to get over, something we've got to get past, something we've got to endure. Is it possible that He leaves us in that so that when we make statements about the culture, when we make statements about the truth, when we make statements about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are singled out, is it possible that what we are doing is imitating Christ who suffered all things on our behalf, who humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross? Is it possible that we in our suffering, we in our persecution, that's what Peter was trying to say to the church. Some of you will die. Some of you will be dragged out of town. Some of you will be in a place where nobody will do business with you. Some of you will be in a place where it is very, very tough to put one foot in front of the other because of the, the, the hardships of life. Rejoice, he says. Persecution may be part of the package. Cultural contrarians... Love God with one heart and mind. I read a book a while back, and uh, the book was um, called The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership, and it was written by the president of the University of Southern California, and, and I don't remember much about what contrarians do when they lead. I just love the word. Contrarians. Uh, I, I, the, the, the idea that there's, that, that there's somebody who with some degree of kindness and civility and maybe even respect for others would, would have a sense that they're just kind of going against the flow. They're not just swallowing hook, line, and sinker the narrative that the culture wants to feed us. In the rest of this series, we're going to talk about specific instances of that. But why should we be involved in the culture? Why should we care? Because God put us here. And we assess the cost of conforming and the cost of confronting. In Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest, I just happened to subscribe, uh, told the, the staff that was my devotion this year. I'm going I'm to go back through that old classic and read each and every day and let it speak into me. Well, this was either yesterday or the day before. Chambers is talking about Abraham sacrificing his own son, Isaac, or being willing to. He says, this event is a picture of the mistake we make when thinking that the ultimate God wants of us is the sacrifice of death. What God wants is the sacrifice through death. 
which enables us to do what Jesus did. That is, sacrifice our lives. Not, Lord, I am willing to go with you to death, Luke 22, but I am willing to be identified with your death so that I might sacrifice my life to God. Listen to this. It is of no value to God to give him your life in death. He wants you to be a living sacrifice to let him have all of your strengths that have been saved and sanctified through Jesus. This is what is acceptable to God. And so the cultural contrarian understands that it is very possible that sacrifice will come, but this is how he lives in it. And this is another fascinating linguistic thing that he does here. He gives us four imperatives in Greek, there's four imperatives. In English, there are five that are characteristics of how we go about living this contrarian life, beginning in verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. If your scripture says prepare your minds, it's simplified. That, that's not an imperative. That's, a, that's an assumption. Preparing your minds for action. Being sober-minded. And here's the first imperative. Let your hope fully, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Number one, how do we live as contrarians? How do we live holy in an unholy culture? How do we speak into the things that, that I listed here? How do we do that as followers of Christ? One, you set your hope on the revelation of Christ. Not, not on the news cycle, not on a particular podcast, but on the hope of Jesus Christ. Then he reads on, verse 14, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It was, it was useless. The, 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 what you used to have, whether it was paganism or Judaism or Greek or Roman or whatever you brought to the table, it, it's not helpful. As obedient children, don't be conformed to those. But he who has called you is holy. So here's the third imperative, the second imperative. Be holy in all your conduct. Set your hope on Christ. Two, be holy in your conduct. Holy doesn't mean flawless. It means different. It means separate. It means set apart for something. It means set apart for God. And then so he goes on. He says, he, he talks about God for a little while. He, since it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. And then he talks about it for a little bit more, and he, he compares the, the sacrifice, the lamb that was at, without blemish. He said, God's known about this from the beginning of the world. And here comes the third imperative, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. That's the third imperative. And apparently that one's so important that he modifies it and he uses the modifier as the bridge to the next imperative. Okay, the grammar police has completely lost us, so you're sound asleep. Stay with me. Uh, an imperative is a command. Do this. And so he says, set your hope. Be holy. Love one another. Those are, are in-your-face kind of commands. But here's the modification. He says, love each other, not, not love the culture, not love what people do. Love each other. First, in, within, stop sniping at each other. Stop 
choosing sides with each other. Don't let your, your, your belief be primary to the gospel. Don't let your political persuasion be primary to the gospel. Don't let your love for something in culture be primary to the gospel. It is Jesus, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Let your love be earnest. Then he modifies it. This looks like another imperative. He he. He quotes some Old Testament Scripture comparing the temporary with the eternal. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he starts, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Well, that sounds like an imperative. In English, it, it reads as a command, but, but it's a participle. It actually is, is a support to love one another and an introduction to the last of the imperatives, the fourth one, long for pure spiritual milk that you can grow up in salvation. All right, been kind of heavy. Let me lighten up a little bit. Does anybody besides me have a sweet tooth. If I am really honest with you, I don't have a sweet tooth. I have a salt tooth. You can have your M&Ms. Give me the Fritos. You can have the, the Reese's Cups. Let me have the corn chips, the Cheetos, the, the salted peanuts, anything with salt. I, I, when, there are times when I'm just sitting there and going, I would love to have a Dr. Pepper and some peanuts. Crave it. There's, a, there's, this, there's something in you, in it, and, and he compares it to the, the craving of an infant who wants milk. And, and so he, he says these words. He says, rid yourselves of all of these things, and it introduces that, that imperative, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk. There's the fourth command. There's the fourth imperative. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, that the Lord is better, that the Lord has a, a, a supremacy, that the supremacy of Christ is over music, it's over media, it's over politics, it's over the, the sniping in culture. It is over all the supremacy of Christ. And he says, when we have learned to crave it, it becomes a matter of adding and subtracting. We subtract some things, especially as we relate to each other. We subtract the malice, the envy, the anger. We, we subtract some things, and the world is watching. Our family is watching. The neighbors are watching. The co-workers are watching. The colleagues are watching. The fellow students are watching. Are we taking away those things that look just like the culture, the same addictions, the same entertainments, the same rates of almost every bad behavior are, are almost identical with Christians as they are with non-Christians? Are we taking those things away so that when we address the culture, we have some sense of spiritual authority to do it? It's a matter of adding. It's a matter of adding love. It's a matter of adding some things that are holy. It's a matter of acknowledging. See what he did in the last part? We're in Babylon. 
The word Babylon there in verse 13, see, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. The church at Rome. Babylon is a code word. He, he wouldn't use Rome because the Google search would reveal anybody who needs to be canceled. And if you use the word Rome in context with anything bad, you are threatening the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. Therefore, you are, are, are subject to further persecution. That's eventually what killed both Peter and Paul. This was written somewhere around 64 A.D. Both of them lost their lives somewhere around 68 A.D as Nero continued to purge voices that didn't support him. He says, you add some things to be a cultural contrarian. You add some things as you spiritually crave, as your spiritual sweet tooth, your spiritual salt tooth kicks into high gear. You, you can't think about anything else. You don't have time to think about social media because you're thinking about Jesus. You don't have time to think about music or, or politics. Yes, all of those are part of our culture. But if they are not filtered through the sweet tooth of the gospel, then we have no spiritual high ground to address them. We are addressing them just like everybody else does, not through the context of the gospel. I want to read a, an article. This uh, came out this week. Jim Dennison uh, publishes a blog every day. And uh, I just found this very relevant to what we were talking about. The ultimate answer to every problem humans face is found in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. He alone can forgive our sins and empower us to truly forgive others and make us the new creation of 2 Corinthians 5 we must become in order to experience abundant life in this fallen world. Satan knows this as well as we do. I don't always speak of Satan in here. If there is a supernatural good, there is by definition a supernatural evil. The supernatural evil, uh, for Peter in this book describes him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Denison suggested three strategies that Satan might use to compromise us culturally. One, he said, if I were Satan, I'd convince Americans to be atheists, to deny the existence of God. Erwin Lutzer said, it's the day after God died in the 19th century, man died in the 20th, for when God is dead, man becomes an untamed beast. Second, if I could not convince Americans to be atheists, Satan might say, I would convince them to be agnostics, one who deny the power of God, even if they entertain the possibility that he might exist. He has no power. Denison said, I, I've really never met an agnostic, someone who is not sure that God is real, but who acts like he does, that he is. Third strategy, convince people to have faith in faith. Denison said, this is Satan's most successful strategy as we look at the culture. We will have faith in faith, to be spiritual but not religious, to believe that so long as we have faith in a higher power, a spiritual feeling of some sort, that is all the religion we need. Be tolerant of all faiths while requiring none. We think we can derive the benefits of believing in God or the gods without choosing any particular religion and its demands on us. Imagine, however, applying this logic to any other dimension of our lives. 
And so long as you have faith in medicine, it doesn't matter what pills you take. So long as you have faith in the highway department, it doesn't matter what road you're on. So long as you have faith in people, it doesn't matter which one you marry. Where in life does faith in faith actually work? If we are not entering the transforming presence of God in worship, hearing His voice in His Word, connecting intimately with Him in prayer, we are placing our faith in faith. We are substituting religion for relationship, and we are missing the empowering, deadly encounter with the living Christ that is our only path to being more than conquerors through Him who loves us. The Issachar Factor. We desire Dunwoody Baptist Church to be people who understand the times and know what we should do.